theoretical physics at part two because I wasn't a very good experimentalist but I was doing an experimental PhD and I was very very clumsy and I kept breaking things and um, I, I wasn't at all sure this was for me so I, I after it must be the beginning of my second term of my PhD I, I just went home and sat on the floor and thought do I really want to do this and after about two weeks I decided that I did not want to quit that I felt if I quitted this what was to stop me quitting anything Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Today we are very excited to present a very special episode. Um, we are going live to the People Lecture Theatre in the, in the Cavendish Laboratory to uh, welcome our guest, Athene Donald, in a live recording of our episode. So without further ado, let's jump in. My name is Vanessa Bismuth. I'm part of the communications team here at the Cavendish and um, uh, part also of the uh, People Doing Physics podcast team. So People Doing Physics is the monthly podcast that explores the personal side of physics. And um, we are asking our staff, our physicists, our technicians, our students to walk, um, to Walk, walk us through their experience, their journey into physics and uh, how they um, enjoy uh, the profession, the joys of the profession or uh, the challenges of the profession as well. And um, together we explore the many, many, many routes that lead to physics. And today we're um, delighted to have our first ever live Uh, recording of our podcasts. Uh, it's a monthly podcast, I said that. Um, it is released every first Thursday of the month and you can find us on every uh, podcast app and every uh, on, on our website as well. And this is Simone, uh, Simone Isagere-Barker, Isagere sorry, uh, my teammate uh, and a PhD student here at the Cavendish and she's going to introduce our special guest today. Yeah, so thanks. Um, this is Professor Damothini Donald, as I'm sure many of you are aware. Um, she's Professor Emeritus of the Cavendish, um, of Experimental Physics, also Master of Churchill College, and uh, you've had a very illustrious research career with numerous accolades, many accomplishments and awards. So you've received the Royal Society of Bakerian Medal, the Royal the L'Oreal UNESCO for Women in Science Award, the Institute of Physics Faraday Medal, 10 honorary doctorates, and many more things that you can find on her Wikipedia page. And um, she's also a strong advocate for women in science, and she's chaired numerous diversity and gender equality initiatives that seek to improve um, the representation and career progression of women in, in STEM. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, as Vanessa was saying, the kind of purpose of the podcast and of this event in general um, is to kind of look behind the, not just talk about the science, but also talk about the people and the kind of how you got to where you are. Um, and so to get us started, could you tell us a bit about what drew you to science and physics in particular? It wasn't my family in that there weren't any scientists in the immediate family. Uh, but when I was first taught physics, I just fell in love with it. So I was about 13 then. I was at a girls' grammar school in London. And I just thought this makes sense of the world to me. It became what I wanted to do, uh, perhaps to the surprise of my family, who <laughs> didn't see it coming, if you like. What was it about the science that you found interesting? Was it 
the topic itself or the way of looking at things? Or? I think it was the way of looking at things, that the fact that we were doing explicit, you know, it was possible to explain things that were very much in the world around us. I realized when I was a, a much smaller child and I had chronic asthma at a time when it was quite hard to treat and I used to have to spend a lot of time in bed. And I can remember sort of sitting in bed and shutting one eye and then the other and noticing where, how my nose got in the way and things. And, you know, with hindsight, I think I was trying to understand, you know, like travels in a straight line kind of thing. Um, so it, it just was interesting to me in a way that chemistry was not, nor biology. So that's why you decided to pursue natural sciences or physics for yes. your undergrad? Yes, and um, I was lucky in a way that many schools now can't provide good teaching. I had uh, a teacher who had studied physics at Oxford. She was highly qualified, highly competent. And as I got into uh, the final years of school doing A-levels, she was able to answer my questions. And I think one of the things that is a problem in physics is there's a real shortage of um, specialist teachers. So that often it's a biologist who's trying to teach physics and with the best will in the world, they may not feel very confident about doing that. And if a bright student asks questions, they may struggle. And I think that's a real problem in our schooling at the moment in this country. Another thing you mentioned, I think it was that you were um, in an old school girl, uh, no, uh, all girls uh, school, sorry. So technically nobody ever told you that like science it was not a, a, a subject that science was maybe not for girls. Indeed. So it was a, a, a good, as I say, it was grammar school. It had quite a large sixth form, but they, they didn't have very many girls doing science at all. And I was the only one who chose to pursue physics. Most of the other girls in the sixth form at that time, the so-called science sixth form, were in fact aspiring to be medics. So... You went on studied natural, natural sciences at Girton College here at the, at the university. And at the time, it was not a mixed gender um, college. Um, what was your experience studying physics there? Um, how did you find the start in the, of the curriculum? So I had done an experimental physics A-level. Um, it was Nuffield Physics at a time when only about 25 schools in the country were doing this. And it was a much more modern curriculum, if you like. Um, but it did mean I knew very different things from the bulk of the other students entering um, physics in the first year. And it took me a very long time, probably not till the end of the first year, I worked out why I was finding physics so difficult. Because things like the perfect gas laws, just about every other student had done that at A-level, and I had not. And we were doing imperfect gas laws, and I was thinking, I don't understand this, you know, where has all this stuff come from? And it was quite challenging. Uh, I think Girton, the director of studies there, was brilliant in, in supporting me. There were, of course, not that many girls doing physics in the first year here. I, I would think it was probably less than 10%, but the overall proportion of girls across the university at that point was only around 10% because there were only three colleges that admitted women. So I came up in 1971. It was the last year when there were no mixed colleges. Mm -hmm. So as you said, I'm master of Churchill College. That was the first college to vote to admit women. And the first women came in 1972. 
Um, so there were very few women across the entire university. And in a way, there weren't that, you know, the proportion of women in physics wasn't that different from the overall proportion, which I don't think is at all true now, because it's still, uh, what is it, 20, 25% in this department now, and it's pretty much 50-50 across the entire university. Mm. And so when you were studying and finding the physics itself difficult, what, I mean, was that something that you realized was happening? I mean, you said that you had a very good director of studies, but was it initially where you just like, oh, maybe physics is too difficult? Or, because I think it's difficult sometimes to know if, you know, is it that you just don't know what you're meant to be studying or? I think I had come up to Cambridge expecting to find things difficult. My mother was very keen to point out I might have been top in my school, but I wasn't going to be top in Cambridge. So, you know, just, just live with that. <laughs> um, and so perhaps I just thought, okay, I'm not really cut out for this, but it, it never crossed my mind to drop out. And um, somewhat bizarrely, I found I did quite well in chemistry, which I was not expecting. I mean, I thought after A-level chemistry, I could stop doing chemistry. And I had intended when I came up as an undergraduate to do physics, uh, what was then called uh, crystalline state, just now material science and geology. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, my DOS said, no, you can't start two subjects from scratch. You're going to have to do chemistry. And I was not pleased, but I did, in fact, get on OK with chemistry in that first year. And, and given what I went on to do working with polymers, actually, the chemistry was really quite useful. And so you stayed in Cambridge for your PhD. What was it like to choose the topic? I mean, you studied the electromicroscopy of metals. Yep. How did you end up choosing such a applied thing that perhaps, I mean, you know, when you think of physics, it's not maybe the first thing you think of. No, I mean, I, I thought about, well, I actually did theoretical physics at part two um, because I wasn't very good at experiment. Um, but then I decided I couldn't stand doing theoretical physics for the rest, you know, for a PhD. So I looked for a, a, pro, a project that was going to be relevant. I mean, it's back to, I wanted to make sense of the world. And so I talked to various groups I did con contemplate going out to LMB and doing something um, with X-ray crystallography, but I was told if I was going to do that, I would have to take 1A physiology, and I didn't really want to do that. Um, so I chose to do this project on the electron microscopy of metals, and um, you know, I don't think what I ended up doing was particularly useful, but at least I, I felt it was more relevant than, say, doing astrophysics or something like that. And could you tell us a bit about what it was that you were actually doing? So I was <coughs> studying, uh, my, the title of my thesis was Grain Boundary Embrittlement in Copper Bismuth Alloys. Your last name, Vanessa. So um, in copper as a metal is usually quite ductile. You can sort of hammer it and it'll flow. But if you add bismuth and indeed some other trace elements, it becomes very brittle and will fracture along the grain boundaries where two crystals come together. And so um, this was meant to be a sort of model system to try and understand why adding some impurities to steel made them very brittle. Uh, and I don't, I don't know quite what my supervisor, Mick Brown, expected to come out of it. But what I discovered was that the grain boundaries when bismuth was present were very different in uh, shape, if you like, from impure copper, so that it had sort of zigzag facets. And I spent a lot of time studying that. Um, I don't know that we ever really explained why, but it was, <laughs> um, 
yeah, it was a finding that has sort of stood the test of time. Actually, I remember now that wasn't meant to be what my PhD was about. Um, I was meant to be using a new um, kind of electron microscopy called scanning transmission electron microscope. And up in the museum, certainly the original HB5 instrument that I was using um, was up there. I assume it's still there. I don't actually notice what's in the museum. Check anymore. later. <laughs> um, but, but the idea was that this technique was meant to be able to image individual atoms. Um, and bismuth being a heavy atom, you should have been able to see it. It didn't work at all like that. Um, such is the nature of research. Um, and I, I'm sorry, it's a long time ago, and I can't remember if we decided that technically it couldn't do it. Um, I suspect we felt that it simply did not have that resolution. Certainly, I got nowhere near being able yeah. to do that. And so in our previous chat, you mentioned that during your PhD, you did still find some aspects of it um, quite difficult, and that you, at some point you, you considered dropping out. What was... What the, was the situation that led to that? And then, you know, what made you stay? <laughs> As I said, I did do theoretical physics at part two because I wasn't a very good experimentalist, but I was doing an experimental PhD and I was very, very clumsy and I kept breaking things. And um, I, I wasn't at all sure this was for me. So I, I after, it must have been the beginning of my second term of my PhD, I, I just went home and sat on the floor and thought, do I really want to do this? And after about two weeks, I decided that I did not want to quit, that I felt if I quitted this, what was to stop me quitting anything? So I came back and, and we did adjust what I was doing so I didn't have to use this particular delicate, it was the, the sample holder essentially that I was breaking. So I used a different electron microscope and in due course I got better. So what would you say to uh, to anybody that might like any any suggestion for any students, PhD students that might go through this kind of questioning about is this for me? Am I am I doing this right? Should I just quit? Oh, I think you have to work out what are you trying to achieve? Is there any way I can keep going with the, the PhD, but maybe slightly alter the project? Um, I mean, in my case, it was very clear I was just clumsy. Um, so. You know, you can try and... Yeah, you had to identify the problem. You, you so, can identify yeah. the problem. And also, you know, once you start getting something wrong, you get more nervous. So if you can do something different for a bit, it maybe will seem less daunting when you come back. Um, but, I mean, that wasn't the only time I was having a disaster in my research career. My first postdoc was probably even worse, where for about two years I had an absolutely miserable time. Um, and... Uh, so I went to the States after my PhD here, I went to Cornell, sort of continuing working in the same area, and I had a two-year postdoc, and it was very unsuccessful, and I completely fell, well, I don't know if I'd ever actually been in love with research up at that point, but I certainly stopped enjoying mm. it at all. Um, but my husband, who I met in Cambridge, um, had gone over and was doing his PhD there at Cornell, and he could not leave after two, the end of my two-year PhD, uh, postdoc, because he wouldn't have got his PhD. So I had to get another position, and that is when I switched from working on metals to working on plastics. And it was um, sort of, I'll take any job that's offered to me. This was electron microscopy of polymers, and within weeks, I mean, like six weeks, I just fell in love with research, probably for the first time. Everything started to go so much better. And yeah, so it was a matter of finding the right subject, basically. Yes. <laughs> like finding I mean, it's, the right partner. I think it's quite obvious that 
during my postdoc, one of the problems I had, I was still working with crystalline materials. I was lousy at thinking in three dimensions. When I switched to working on non-crystalline polymers, it was an awful lot easier. I could, didn't have to have that sort of very clear ability to think in three dimensions. So that was uh, leading nicely in my next question, which about uh, your time at Cornell um, for your postdoc, and so your move to um, the US, um, because you went to Cornell and then you went back to Cambridge. But yes. so we are going to talk more about Cambridge after that. But I'm still interested to hear about your experience of like moving countries and and changing topics as well. It took two years. It but, took me two years. But you pivoted then. So what was it like? And I, I found it. Again, challenging. The, I got culture shock going to the States. Um, I found it quite alien in a way. I had done my PhD in three years, which was at that point still quite normal. So I was 24 when I went to the States. And if you know anything about the American system, PhDs are much longer there. So I was, as a postdoc, I was younger than a lot of the PhD students, and I found that quite daunting. You were also the first and I female was, student. I, yes, I was so also the first female postdoc. I, was, I went to a material science and engineering department, so it was in the engineering faculty, and there were just really few women around. But I, <clears throat> the thing that kept me sane during those first two years when I was um, really pretty miserable was I formed, or I joined, um, a quartet, a Sweet Adeline's Quartet, which probably won't mean much to anyone, but it's, it's um, the male equivalent is barbershop, it's close harmony singing. And there were three PhD students, female, who, um, and I, we formed this quartet. And, you know, it was a good social um, group who, who supported each other. Mm. And I, was, I wasn't that different in age from them, because as I say, I was quite young. So I, I could, get support from that group of women when I didn't feel I was supported in the department. Mm, that helped. So once you came back to Cambridge, you worked on a Royal Society funded project on soft matter physics, food science. <laughs> well, not immediately. I spent two years in the material science department uh, working on liquid crystalline polymers before mm -hmm. I came back to the Cavendish as a Royal Society research fellow. Mm -hmm. And that's, yes, when I started working on food. Mm -hmm. And so initially, I mean, in our previous chat, you mentioned how I mean, even though this is the work that later on, you know, you received all these awards for, all this pioneering work in soft matter physics, at the time, the attitudes when you started working on it, even from the department itself, people, other people in the department was kind of looking down on this like applied, you know, biophysics-y. There was <laughs> certainly a strong strand of that. So Brian Pippard, who was the, probably he'd retired as Cavendish professor. We're sitting in the lecture theater named after him. <laughs> And his, his portrait is outside. You know, I am an physicist, but he didn't have much time for what I was doing. And he said things have come to a sad pass when people at the Cavendish study starch, which is what I was doing. And as a young lecturer, which I would have been by then, that was really very depressing. Mm. And Sam Edwards, who, whose portrait is also just outside, he was um, the Cavendish professor by that point. And he, you know, it was him who had initially got the, the money to work on food and everything. So, of course, he was really supportive, but he was in a minority, I would say. And so what was it that you were working on, on the starch? So, I, <clears throat> so my postdoc at Cornell had been about um, mechanical properties of polymers, so, you know, why do crush helmets get brittle over time, that kind of thing. And it was suggested that I worked on the mechanical properties of snack foods, usually known as cheesy watsits. 
Um, and so I, I started off looking at that. Now, to make a cheesy watsit, you essentially take a load of starch from, in this case, maize, corn, and you stick it in an extruder with water, and you heat the whole thing up, and you put it through this extruder, and out at the other end, um, and we, yeah, you heat it all up, and when, when you release the pressure as it comes out of the extruder, the water boils off and forms the foam. So depending on exactly how much water you add, what temperature, what mechanical energy you put in in the screw extruder <coughs> will determine the nature of the foam that comes out at the other end, including whether you're going to break your teeth on it. So I, I started off studying the mechanical properties of these snack foods. And then it became clear to me that as a physicist, I didn't understand what was happening to the starch itself, not what was happening to the sort of macroscopic kind of... Uh, structure but what happened to the starch itself and we started doing experiments with small angle x-ray scattering which is like normal x-ray crystallography except it's at small angles which means you're measuring larger distances and um, we started doing experiments at the synchrotron and that that then took on a life of its own and became quite a, a quite a large program of work for a, a quite a long time but that was also what led me into working much closer to biology. So it, in order to try and understand, say, how potato starch and wheat starch differed, you know, we could do the x-ray scattering, but what was it about the molecules in these um, starch granules that made them different? And I started talking to, uh, first of all, Tom Apries here in Plant Sciences, and then to a former student of his, um, Alison Smith at the John Innes Centre. And we had a quite successful collaboration for a few years. She was the plant biochemist. I was the, the physicist. We spent about a year trying to understand what on earth the other one was talking about, because our, our, the jargon in the two fields are very different. And you know, she would use all kinds of words I hadn't a clue about. And I would talk to her about X-ray scattering, which meant nothing to her. So if you are going to try and work between disciplines, you've really got to learn to understand each other's language up to a point anyhow. And do you think the attitudes around that kind of interdisciplinary science and the more applied aspects of science has changed during the time that you've definitely, worked on it? Um, I don't think it's completely solved the problem. I think interdisciplinary work still has challenges that if you are mainstream sort of core in any given area of science, physics, whatever, um, it's easier. I think interdisciplinary work does come with challenges. As I say, you, you've got to spend a long time understanding the other part or parts of the problem and the language. So it, it's not going to give you results particularly fast, which if you are a, an early career researcher setting up, may feel very daunting. So beyond your research, you're also a very um, outspoken champion and advocate of uh, for women in science and in fact you have a book coming out in May and uh, it's called Not Just for Boys. Not Just for the Boys, uh, yes. Why we need more women in science and it's l reflecting on the obstacles faced by women in science and the system of bias, the historical system of bias. Um, I'm interested to, to know if there was any specific event or anything anything that you can pin down that started this activism. So back in 1999, MIT produced a report called something like the status of women in science at MIT, <clears throat> which um, someone known in the States sent to me. And it basically showed that 
the faculty at MIT in, in the sciences were the, the women faculty had less lab space, they got paid less, you know, they were systemically disadvantaged. And I think up to that point, no one had actually sat down and thought about this. So in the States, you negotiate your salary in a way um, that doesn't happen to the same extent here. So it was very obvious that the women who were all very successful scientists were being paid less. Um, and this report highlighted that every individual woman thought, I'm just not so good, you know, I'm, the men are better, I, I'm failing in some way. But when, the, when they all gathered this information together and sent it to the provost or principal or whatever he was at MIT, I think every, it was a wake-up call to everyone there, and a lot of work was done. And when I saw this, I suddenly thought, well, maybe the fact that I'm not quite cutting it, as it were, in the department isn't because I'm not persuasive when it comes to a committee meeting or whatever. Maybe it is because of my gender, which I'd never thought about before. By this point, I, I mean, I was elected to the Royal Society in 1999, so I was quite senior. Um, but but I, did feel, um, I did feel that somehow I didn't quite cut the mustard in this department. And some of that was back to the fact that the science I did was regarded as odd. Um, so over the next few years, I suppose I digested this information, if you like. Um, I felt there were various quasi-political decisions taken in the department where um, the kind of research area uh, that I was working in didn't get the same support as some other areas did. And, you know, I was the leader of that group, so yeah, it must have been my fault in some way. And I got pretty, I got pretty fed up, really. Yeah. There's actually, um, in terms of the MIT report, there's a really good documentary, Picture a Scientist, on Netflix. Um, Picture a and, Scientist, And on yeah. other platforms yeah. as well, which talks about how they came up with that yes. and has interviews. So Nancy recommend that to yes. anyone who's interested. Yes, absolutely. Um, sorry, were you going to... Yeah, sorry. I, I wanted to say, um, but, but do you think it's important so when people reach some um those positions of power uh well seniority let's say uh to use this to empower others to fight or do you think it's a bit unfair that it's the people that are discriminated against that have to advocate for themselves i think that is something that is changing i think it used to be that um the problems for women in science was, or, or problems for women were seen as the women's problem, you know, and it was a case, you know, you had to advocate, you had to fight your corner. I think that's really changing. And, you know, on the committees I sit on now, it's very clear that many men are what you might call allies. They are doing the advocating too. Nevertheless, if you are, if you are trying to have, say, a grant panel, um, or an appointments panel, and you want to have representation of whatever the minority may be, um, then you end up having to put more load on the minority, and, and typically, but not necessarily, it's a woman. Um, so that women often, in that situation, end up having to do more of the work in order to try and compensate. And I think that's a real challenge. How do you get around that? But the more Everyone thinks that diversity is a good thing, and it isn't just about gender. It is about all kinds mm. of diversity. The more everyone sort of accepts that diversity leads to better science, which the evidence suggests it does, just as it leads to better financial outcomes in, in a company, if you have a diverse board, um, I think the less the pressure will be put on the individual minority member. 
Mm. So when you joined, you joined, you joined Churchill College as master 10 years ago? Mm, 2014. Yeah, almost, almost. Um, um, was this a strategic decision where you envisioned that you could leverage that influence and to enact the changes that you think were necessary? Because Churchill was also like a kind of a progressive Absolutely. college. It is a progressive college. It is a progressive college. No, I don't think so. I mean, I become the university's gender equality champion in 2010, and that gave me a platform. Um, that gave me a voice. It meant I could talk to you know, the pro-vice-chancellors, the vice-chancellor, um, could challenge some of the things that were happening. I mean, just to give you a trivial example, it used to be that there was, if, if you know, there's some central university committee, it would list all the names and it would have an F against the women. Um, so that the women were identified as being female and the men weren't identified as being men. And I said, you know, why do you have to do that? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, we're assuming that we're male by default, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yes. And, and you know, it's, it's sort of, does it matter? Well, in a way it does, because it, it's, it's a sort of perspective that, yeah. that always makes the woman the other. So I think it was at that point, and 2010, um, yes, 2010 was also the year I was made a dame, and I was very conscious that being made a dame gave me a, a sort of standing that was completely random. I mean. It, you know, the honor system, we could debate the honor system for a long time, but, hmm. but people take it seriously. So it, it did give me a, a sort of more, not a visible voice, an audible voice. Um, by the time I went to Churchill, I, I would, there are many colleges I would not have contemplated going to be master of. And the fact that Churchill was progressive was certainly extremely attractive. Churchill is also, if you don't know, by statute, it is 70% in the sciences. STEM subjects, so science, technology, engineering, and maths, and it's the only Cambridge college that mm. has that sort of speciality. And so those those two factors were made it very attractive. You mentioned that when you were made a dame, um, you you got this voice and this standing. It also gave you this kind of freedom to speak out because you were thinking. You went, I think you said something like, I, "Nobody can." Uh, what can they, they do to me? me. They, they can't, can't touch, touch me, exactly. <laughs> yes, I mean, whether that was right or wrong, that was when I started blogging. And, uh, you know, I cannot be sure that the two were connected, but I started blogging about three months after being made a mm. dame. Um, and, and my blog, I'm, I'm not a very active blogger now, I seem to have run out of steam, but initially I, I blog maybe once every five days or so, and I know a lot of young women read it. And um, to some extent, the book that you mentioned earlier, um, has grown out of that. The, the, the blog was very personal, and my editor at OUP kept saying to me, "You can't write a book like a blog. You know, that's too chatty. You need the evidence. You need the graphs." So it's slightly more formal in the book. We'll put the the information about the book in the show notes for the people listening to the podcast uh, later on. But it's called uh, "Not Just for the Boys," yeah, um, and it's coming out in May. And so you do a lot of outreach and also policy work. And so what is it like to interact with, you know, you, before in academia, you obviously you're interacting with your peers, your students, and now you're starting to interact with, well, at the time you're starting to interact with more people from just the general public, politicians, you know, what was that like? Um, well, I was the time, so I, at the time I was the gender equality champion, I also was chairing the Royal Society's Education Committee, which is about five to 19 education. And at one point, I had a meeting with Nick Gibb, who at that point was the schools minister. He's, he's B 
been the schools minister for a very long time. I've lost track of if he still is. But we had a meeting and, and this guy decided, <laughs> for whatever reason, that he would ask me to do a long division sum in his office. And you know, I'm of the generation that probably could have done a long division sum. Um, and I refused. I said, Minister, I don't think that's the best use of our time. <laughs> and the civil servants thought this was hilarious. Um, and, and to be fair to Nick Gibb, our meeting overran quite substantially, so presumably he wasn't too offended by it. Um, it. It's very different. And I think learning how to talk to policymakers is it's a skill. I don't think, as, as, it's very easy as a scientist to think facts are all there is, it's very objective. And policy, politicians and policymakers don't think like that. They think, well, here are some facts and here are what's going to win me votes or, or whatever it may be. So you have to learn how to frame an argument, which is what social scientists do all the time, but scientists aren't taught to do it. Um, you have to think, what are the, the three things this guy has to know in the next two minutes in order to get my point across? You know, they always talk about the elevator pitch. Um, I don't think I'm particularly good at that. Um, but, but you... You have to recognise politicians will not simply make decisions based on facts mm. because they have to worry about many other things. You know, will a certain section of the community be offended? You know, whatever it may be. So it is a different skill, um, and you know, it, I like new challenges. Just as my research subject has changed throughout the years, um, I think taking on a new sort of activity it's a good thing to do and so then when you know we see that certain politicians you make start to make sweeping generalizing statements about i don't know girls don't like math or things like that <laughs> yes. then what what's the response from people like you who you know do a lot of work trying to dispel those myths that at the end of the day like the facts don't point in that direction well it wasn't a politician who said girls don't like hard maths it was a head teacher i'm not Which sure that doesn't make worse. it worse yeah. yes exactly <laughs> yeah. a female head teacher so this was at a science and technology select committee which was looking at diversity in STEM. And this, this head teacher, uh, Catherine Babelsing, made these pronouncements and it, it caused a huge sort of stir. And I can't be sure about this, but I think the select committee decided they needed more evidence. Because she said, I don't know, this is just what the evidence says. I guess it's you know innate or something. I can't remember her exact phrases. You can find it on YouTube. Um, but, but the select committee decided to have, a, I think, an extra session um, and invites some people along to, to, if you like, to counter that. And so I was invited to go and speak. It was the first time I'd ever talked to a select committee. Um, the vice president of the Institute of Physics went along. Um, and we were able to say, well, no, the evidence actually isn't that at all. You know, here, here are some facts. Um, which was, I think, very useful. And if you want to read the report of the committee, it's coming out next week, I believe. I haven't seen it, but... You know, Great but timing. Finally, yeah, finally it's appearing, because this was... It was last May I gave evidence, I think, or possibly um, June. So it's a matter of repeating, repeating it, and repeating yes. over and over and over again. Until... But the, the really worrying thing is, if head teachers believe that, then what what message are they giving to the school children at that school or to the teachers? You know, that if, and in this particular school, only 16% of girls were in the A-level class, which is below the national average. And the head teacher was sort of oblivious to this uh, and thought it didn't matter. And, and you sort of feel, well, 
you know, maybe at age 12 or 14, these girls are being told subliminally, nah, don't bother, don't do it. And I just think that's so dangerous and so damaging. And we won't have the scientists we need in the future. You even say that it starts much earlier than that as well, that, that this kind of bias um, yeah. is actually starting from very young age. Starting practically from birth. I mean, there is evidence that if you give a small baby to you know, the subject in a study, as it were, and say, this is a boy, they will treat it differently from if you say it's a girl. I mean, if you dress them in neutral clothes, there are no clues. They will just react differently without any other cues. So, yeah, conditioning starts incredibly young and the toys that children are given. If you don't give children Meccano, then they end up like me, unable to think in three dimensions. You know, it's... Breaking so, things. I'm breaking things, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> so it's been really fascinating to talk to you about your life, your career, the physics, the advocacy. Um, and have you gotten to where you are now? Um, what's your hope? for the legacy that you're building through this advocacy, through the books, for example, and for the next generation? Well, I hope that some of these things we were just talking about, about the way um, society, parents, teachers treat boys and girls differently, diminishes because, you know, maybe there are intrinsic differences. I don't really care about that. What I care is that each child is able to, to achieve its potential. And if you look at the vet school, not that far away, 80% of the undergraduates are female there. Or they were last time I checked the numbers. So, you know, boys are being put off some subjects. And again, the Institute of Physics has done quite a lot of work on this. And girls are being put off other subjects. And I find it hard to believe that that is necessary, innate or anything. And, and there are other parts of the world where Loads of engineers are women, so you know the, the proof that you know there is evidence that it's not innate. But thank you very much, Athene, for your time and for being with us today, and thank you very much, audience, for uh, taking part in this uh, live recording. Thank you very much. So there you have it, our first ever live recording of People Doing Physics. And once again, a huge thank you to our very special guest, Athene Donald, for her time and her wonderful chat, and to our wonderful audience as well for uh, being with us on the day. Um, the episode was recorded and edited by our uh, technician, Chris Brock. Check the show notes for details of what has been discussed in this episode. And if you would like to learn more about our work at the Cavendish, please go to www.phy.cam.ac.uk. That's www.phy.cam.ac.uk. Thank you for listening to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. We'll be back next month. Until then, take care.